Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Unspoken Words, a selective mutism podcast hosted by me, Dr. Elisa Chipon-Blum, or Dr. E, as people call me. How are you today? I'm doing really ha- well, and I'm so happy to be with you today. Oh, this is awesome. I am so excited today to be with Dr. Vera Jaffe. She is a licensed psychologist who is board certified in clinical child and adolescent psychology. She's licensed in Florida and New York and certified in PCIT and PCITSM. She has been working with children and um, with a variety of neurodevelopmental disorders for over 30 years and selected mutism for over 25 years. Or more. Look at you. <laughs> or more. Or more. I know. That's what I say, right? Or yeah, more. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And we first met like 25 plus years ago. Yes, we did. Um, I came to you because <laughs> I was desperately looking for information about selective mutism. As you know, I work with very young children, and I uh, was finding a lot of cases of selective mutism which was then elective mutism. And I really knew there was something wrong that was going on. There were a lot of neurodevelopmental symptoms that were associated with that. And I had not learned about it at school, as most psychologists still don't. And I went looking for help and for helping the information. And I found you. So I flew to Philadelphia. No, actually, it was Boston. <laughs> yeah, it was Boston. I remember that. To meet you. And I uh, then became your follower, scientifically, clinically, a colleague. And we presented together SMA a few years ago, exactly on this topic of comorbidity. And what I love about your approach is that if we have such synchronicity because I found in your approach, first of all, you came from a physician's point of view and you see that there is not one condition isolated or not a kid who is isolated in a diagnosis, but you see the child as a whole and you evaluate the whole child. And to me, that's really important. Yes, thank you. You just summed up so many great things and we just instantly connected. And what really stood out was how you also saw the whole person and and you weren't about treating to speak and that understanding of the whole person and then the stages and the bridge. I remember you sharing with me how some of your patients were drawing the bridge and yes, yeah, and how that made sense. So I am just so excited for you to be here because As a psychologist, you have so much insight and so much experience for the years that you've been doing it. And I love your motto, you know, the one of the things you said, the earlier, the better, and prevention, prevention, and prevention. And, you know, that also resonates, you know, with me so much. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Sure, sure. First of all, can I just go back to the bridge? Because I think we have a lot of (laughs) scales uh, of SM. But the best way to plan a treatment, well, we can talk about that later, but I'm so excited to tell you that your approach to making treatment plan and to showing parents and children their treatment plan and to show how well the interventions are working is the best one. And I have several examples of your bridge. I have it in Play-Doh. I have it in crayon. I have it in all kinds. I have in like, you know, uh, 
another one that we did in the little camp, always we do bridge. So the earlier, the better. As you probably agree with me and science says, that's why the earlier we're able to diagnose, appropriately diagnose, not just diagnose, but appropriately and uh, comprehensively diagnose and treat uh, neurodevelopmental and mental health disorders, the sooner uh, the child is going to respond, the more effective the treatment is going to be, and the shorter the treatment is going to be. We know that for a fact. So I'm very happy when I get a call from a parents from a three and a half year old child or four year old child, because it's much easier to treat that than when they come when they are teenagers or 12 year old child or older. So that's the one. Prevention is really what I love to do. I'm very passionate about this. And you as a physician, you were too, because we can teach pediatricians and parents and also educators and other healthcare providers to screen for certain anxiety signs, even a nine-month-old baby or a two-year-old child, and not just become very complacent. So, no, she's just shy, especially for girls, and say, she's just shy, she's going to start talking soon, and just assume that that's what it is. And that's why I think it's really important to empower parents to look for help, and you have been providing so much help to parents when you first came out with the first article that you came out in a magazine was People Magazine, if I'm correct. And that really reached out to so many people. So I'm really, that's what we need to do. Prevention is the best way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you nailed it on the head with the younger, the better. And really, you know, the name of the podcast being Unspoken Words to look, listen and learn from these children. They really do tell us what else is going on. And one of the, you know, one of the big reasons I wanted you here is that you and I've always talked in hours about the comorbidities, the whys of SM and how that plays such an important role in understanding, diagnosing, and then developing an appropriate treatment plan at home, real world, and school. So that's what I'm super excited, you know, to talk to you about, especially with your background in developmental uh, disorders um, and having that developmental perspective is is so important. And that's how my SMCDQ or the Selective Mutism Comprehensive Diagnostic Questionnaire came about. It was to dive into their background and their presenting features in so many aspects of their life, not just about their mutism. So I thank you for, you know, seeing SM this way as well, because I think in order to really be effective, you really have to have a true understanding of these factors and these comorbidities. So let's kind of get right into it and share with me some of the kind of the big whys or the comorbidities that you see with SM. Okay. So I think that there are a lot of commonalities to other disorders. And, you know, we do see sensory modulation issues. And I say modulation instead of integration because I think neuropediatricians prefer that term. Uh, we also have, uh, at times we have speech and language disorders. We do have, and I'm going to say this clearly because there are two different levels or different campaigns of research, if you can call it that way. Some people do not like to include ASD with uh, SM, but you and I know that they are, they can co-occur, but we also have to make a differential diagnosis, and this is really important to do. I think that there are other, other comorbidities that have to do with rigidity of cognition and of behavior. 
which is really important because that really impairs the children, impairs their, uh, impairs us to do the treatment at times, but it also may impair them at home where they show tremendous defiant behavior at home where they need to run things their way. Like I'm going to drink from that cup or I'm not talking at that school or that kind of thing. Uh, there are some other modulation issues that are like sensitivity to sound, uh, food. I have at this point in my practice at least five children who do not eat the food if they're touching each other when they come to me the first time. And that, well, what does that have to do with SM? I have a hypothesis, which you and I will do some research and we'll do, <laughs> talk about this. But it, it, it's amazing. Like I asked the questions and the kid and the parents say, how do you know to ask that question? Because there is such a pattern. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the comorbidities. Of course, we have not only other disorders. We have genetic factors. We know that it's very genetic. We also have cultural factors, bilingualism is also comorbidity, but bilingualism or, or three languages do not cause selective mutism. It's more present in selective ah. mutism. So all of these are, okay, so this is really important that parents who immigrate don't think, oh, I should have never moved to another country. You know, it's, it's not that. It's just, and perfectionism, which has to do with the cognitive and all that rigidity that there is. There are like different groups of children, children who are, have good articulation and language. They are more likely to be perfectionists and then the ones who have some difficulty with speech and language. So if you look at the DSM-5, and I just received the DSM-5 review text, but there is a discussion in DSM-5 or the people who are involved, and I'm sure you're part of that discussion, whether we should become a little bit looser in terms of not ruling out certain comorbidities in order to make the diagnosis of SM. Yeah, I mean, it goes right back to SM for me being a social communication anxiety disorder. It's yes. not, you know, the name yes. SM, I, I really believe, and I say this all the time, I tell families at, like in our intensives and at camp, I say, take the word SM, scrunch it all up, smush it on the ground and throw it away. Yes. Because if you're focusing on the mutism, you're missing the boat. I mean, if it yes. was just a shy child, there wouldn't be so many individuals, children, teens, and adults suffering for so long. Let's face it, right? And yes. I think that if you see it from that social communication anxiety perspective, we go into, well, why are they anxious? It, you know, everybody's different. Anxiety is not, like, anxiety isn't one size fits all. It's why are they anxious? Nobody is just anxious for no reason. So what is it? Is it right. the speech and language? Is it their inability to process what's being said to them? Their inability to put their right. thoughts together and say it? Are they going through the natural silent period being bilingual or multilingual and they're trying to digest and understand the language? What is causing it? Right. Are they highly sensitive? Or as you said, sensory processing disorder or sensory modulation challenges. I mean, it's a continuum. And the reason I feel it's so important to know these comorbidities or rule in or rule out, and I know that you agree because we've talked at length for this, is that every treatment plan will change based on those comorbidities yes. or whys. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Right? So it isn't so much, yes. yes, it's speech and language. Yes, they have processing challenges. They're highly sensitive or they literally cannot process and they have sensory processing disorder, as they call it, or modulation difficulties. It's about how do we incorporate, right? 
How do we incorporate yes. these challenges in our treatment plan? They're not separate. They're not. They they contribute to why someone developed SM and why it's continuing. And once we begin to see it as a person and the challenges this individual is having, then we're able to incorporate strategies appropriately because the person with speech and language is going to be different than someone that's necessarily not necessarily like that. That's <laughs> listen to me. I'm talking so fast because I'm so excited. I, me too. I know. I love to talk to you. And I always make this joke that it, when I'm flying on a plane and somebody's sitting next to the window and I always have the aisle and they say, what do you do for a living? And I go, let me tell you. And the entire <laughs> trip I'm chatting about SM. So I am right. excited. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that all of these aspects are going to contribute to the development of an appropriate school-based accommodation plan, as well as strategies and how to parent these children. Because let's face it, something like sensory processing, right? Highly sensitive versus having a full-blown sensory processing challenges and how that affects them, like their neurological system, their ability to regulate themselves, their behavioral challenges, their picky eating challenges, their toileting, their sleeping. All of this is incorporated into who they are as a person. And we have to understand all that to develop an appropriate treatment plan. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you because if you have, for instance, a speech and language disorder, let's say speech, because language is, you know, it's more in depth, but you have to work with that. But how are you going to work with that to incorporate for the SM? In a school plan, you're going to have to train the speech and language therapist in SM in order to be able to work with this child. And so there are different things that you have to combine and you can't just have one fits all. It can be like, you know, factory kind of protocol for everybody. And when you bring up the speech and language, I know that a lot of our listeners, they hear us talk about it, but what they're really looking for is, well, what do you do? How do you help somebody with speech and language? How is that different in your treatment plan for somebody that is bilingual? That's somebody that doesn't have speech and language. Maybe they're bilingual or multilingual and they have speech and language. Maybe they're timid on top of it. Maybe they're also sensory sensitive. So all of that is incorporated. But some basic strategies that I think, and I'm interested in hearing what you're also doing. When I'm working with a child or a teen or even an adult, and you look back and you look at their life, you can see these commonalities. So a child with speech and language issues, they may understand, right, their receptive skills, but their ability to put their thoughts together and say it. And we saw that clearly in our speech and language research, where they had difficulty with their narrative speech, that about the 40% of the individuals had speech and language issues, right? So how can you treat to speak if you're ignoring this 40% of the population And maybe they developmentally were delayed, but what happens with a teenager who goes years and years or an adult and not having the give, take, back, forth of communication, they develop an acquired speech and language disorder. Yes, yes, because they don't practice. And also the social communication disorder, Right, as you say, they they don't practice. And if they don't practice, they look like they don't know how to go about doing that and they they don't practice, so they do not learn the nuances or how to position themselves. So that's a very good point that you're making, and you're right. I think we have to pay attention to this. That's why the earlier the better, as we say. But I tell parents of kids who come here later when they are older that it's just like if your child had dyslexia when your child was younger, 
you would treat the child every day and do specific tutoring for dyslexia. Now you have a 12-year-old who is coming to treatment. We have to do the social communication practice a lot more intensively than we would do if your child was younger because they have to be exposed to that to survive. Absolutely. They don't. High school. So I, I even, I always say that when somebody progresses into speech, so we'll talk about that for a second, but I want to go back to some strategies and I want to hear about your, some of your cases and strategies that you're doing. Even when they become verbal, don't you see that they're often one or two words? They're not elaborate. They're not initiative. They're not expressive. So we almost have to teach them, right? How to become initiative, elaborative, and expressive by the give, take, back, forth of communication, whether they're games they play and, you know, what's your favorites when they're little to assignments and interview-based questions that are very specific and scripted to open-ended thought-provoking questions and really in a very structured way, train teachers, train parents, how to implement these either as games for younger folks or as goals to work on with the older folks, right? Right. So I think that's where you you mentioned something that I think a key element to doing an appropriate diagnosis and treatment plan is to observe this child at home or with whoever this child feels comfortable with the parents. Um, and like I ask parents to videotape and actually I sometimes watch them in the Zoom and I'm communicating with the phone text with them before I know the child so that I see their normal, regular interaction in a situation that they're most comfortable with so that they can, I can evaluate. I'm not a speech and language therapist and I, I love the, the work that you did with Evelyn Klein. I think she's the best with her work as a psychologist, speech and language therapist, and also, um, you know, uh, the work that she's done with you. So I think that we have to see how they speak at home. If they know, if they have the skills at home, because if they do, then it's not a matter of practicing that much. But there, I think that there are different groups of kids who do, some children do not have the language at home either. Mm -hmm, And that would be a reason for further assessment too. And some children do have it. Some children have the social communication that is appropriate at home and some don't. So then we have another, I think that there are two different groups of kids. But then when you get to be a teenager, you have to develop some other kind of communication that you don't practice at home with your parents, (laughs) you know, because it's more like, it's more abstract and it's more, kind of a game kind of situation. Um, so uh, that added to the fact that kids are texting a lot now. Oh, so they're really not practicing other, their social skills. Guess what? That's a whole yeah. other podcast we're going to do. Yeah, yeah. Because you're correct. But you yeah. brought something up that's uh, really important. What are the language skills at home? And what are the language skills out and about like at school? Because you're correct. If they're at home and they aren't able to put their thoughts together well and say it, or they're frustrated a lot, I don't know. I always say the I don't know kids. They act out, they're frustrated, they can't express themselves, or they don't elaborate an initiative, uh, initiate a lot. You know what? That's an issue. And so how many times have you gotten families come to you? Um, It happens to us probably on a at least four to five times a month where we see this, where they don't have appropriate language skills at home. They never did. They could be a young adult 
and they they yes. come for treatment. They think you're going to fix it. And when we dive into this background, you know, we do what we call the selective mutism evaluation or selective mutism interview based on, you know, whether we're licensed in a particular location. But what that is, is that goes into the background and really screens for these kind of whys and comorbidities before we even begin treatment, because we have to get, we have to have speech and language testing. We have to be realistic to, to be able to explain to the family, what is that child's capacity you know, what can we help them get to? But if they're not able to speak age-appropriate language developmentally at home, that's not something we can quote-unquote cure. We can help them reach their capacity and hopefully with a good speech and language evaluation and appropriate treatment, they can become a more functioning social communicator. And again, you know, how do you work with each family in that way? Because if you tell the the parents that they have to do this too. And we have to train the speech and language therapists because you have people who have been training Evelyn's, Evelyn Klein's model about training the parents to assess the children when they're not going to speak with the speech and language therapist. But how do you do that uh, with a family that comes to you and they want you to fix? So you have a very good point. And I think that I observe them either in my office, a one-way mirror. I observe them in a Zoom at, at home. And then I tell them that I have a suspicion about uh, probably language. I just, you know, just so that you know, like I received one that is in high school now. And I asked the parents to give me videos of from the time this kid was really little. And, you know, I want to have that. And I was not able to get one video of this boy with uh, appropriate language. So that worries me. And that's when I have to give the feedback to the parents and I have to tell them we need to do more. And it's not so, you know, straightforward as him. So we're talking about some of the comorbidities and we talked about like 40% of individuals that have speech and language issues. And we have information on speech and language testing that we've done through the Selective Mutism Research Institute on our website. They can read the published research where Dr. Klein, Evelyn Klein and Sharon Armstrong did that groundbreaking research on speech and language issues. So that's clearly there. So one of the comorbidities of of the many that we're talking about is speech and language and being able to accommodate speech and language challenges um, using, you know, something as simple as scripts, right? I always say visuals to see, choices to hear. I always say if you have visuals to see and choices to hear, you're minimizing the individual's need to think and process, which accommodates almost all the anxiety, right? In terms of what the kind of the comorbidities are, you cannot go wrong with visuals and choices. But for someone with speech and language to hear the choices, to see the choices visually, to hear it audibly, that is going to help them. Having things scripted out, working with them on, you know, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Scripting out those sentences, those interviews of kind of beginning to memorize, but seeing those scripts, even reading their scripts in a restaurant and being able to predict the common questions that are going to be asked of right. them and get ready for that, that is going to really help someone with speech and language issues. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, we talked about asking the forced choice question instead of asking, how was your day today? Or do you want pasta? So we offer that. And we also have the parents send emails to the teacher on a daily basis or at least after the weekend say, well, we went to the zoo this weekend so that the teacher will ask, did you go to the zoo or did you go swimming this weekend? And 
for the children who have difficulty coming out with the, the, uh, an answer that is open-ended, having had, having heard that or seen, if you want to do the, the, the scene too, then they will be more likely to answer. And we don't know where the egg comes, if it's a difficulty with the production of the speech or if the anxiety that, you know, creates more difficulty. But nevertheless, those approaches are very helpful. I agree with you. And They're very successful. And then the teacher, when they even ask the choice, if the child stops, right, they don't answer in a timely manner, giving them that time, re-asking the yes. question in like five to seven seconds and prompting them to write it. And if they're able to speak it, read it or write it and show it if they're stage non, you know, nonverbal stage one. But also right. if they have a friend and they can ask the choice, did you want red or blue? No answer. Red or blue? Tell Robert. So now we're using the intermediary. So In intermediary. Right. Yeah. The verbal exactly. intermediary. So we're respecting their yes. baseline stage all along and we're bridging them up as much as we can with that, with being realistic to what they can accomplish. And this is where training schools are very important because they need the guidance from professionals with experience. They can't just, oh, I've had a kid Absolutely. with SM. How often do we hear, oh, I've had a student with SM. I know what I'm doing. And with all yeah. due respect, like yeah. I've, we, you and I've treated thousands of kids and we're always learning and they're teaching us what we need to know and we're applying it. And there's no way right. from one child that they know it all. Right. 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 Absolutely. That's what we hear a lot. But we say, okay, but I still would like to come. And I love, you know, that the bridge is behind in your background, because I think that that's, that's exactly what we show the kids, we show the teachers, we show the parents, and it's very concrete. The treatment, the goals are very concrete. And I tell parents, it's very easy if you, if you use what's most uh, applicable from research that works, not play therapy, that it shouldn't happen in the doctor's office. It should happen where it happens. You know, I call this naturally, you know, environmentally based treatment delivery. So, and one of the things you mentioned is about like perfectionism and need for control. And that bridge gives you control. It gives those children yes. control. And when we see those lights go off in session or at camp, it's amazing because they get it. They see they're on the bridge. They don't feel like a failure. So if I don't speak, I'm basically like a failure. I don't speak. No, right. you're working. You're brave just showing up and seeing where they are. And wow, I can yes. do this. I can do that. I can yes. tell my friend. I can, you know, use an intermediate. I can tape my voice and play it. I can shape sounds into words. I can show the waiter what I want. They feel empowered because they're making, they're successful. Right, right. But absolutely. And it's always like little steps. And that's why I like the way that this boy is walking, you know, going. Yeah, he's all going, going up, and towards, you go yeah. up and down the bridge based on who's there, the expectation and teaching parents and even the older teens and adults, which is a very CBT based approach to be able to accommodate their own anxiety, right? Like to be able to accommodate right. their own stages when they're feeling anxious to be able to bridge down and be able to write and read or something and prepare, like whatever it is we're trying to help right. them accommodate. So we talked about speech and language. Let's talk a little bit about sensory modulation or being highly sensitive because that is such a large percentage of individuals. Yes, yes, it is. And what is your explanation for that? <laughs> I always say it's a continuum. I say that a lot of the individuals we work with, 
They are very highly sensitive. They're very aware. They're very perceptive. They know who knows, who doesn't know. They can really read people well. A lot of times they're very empathetic. They're very compassionate. They're very deep and they're very affected and they're very highly sensitive. So being a highly sensitive individual, the environment can also cause them to be stressed if it's very yes. loud, very large, a lot of people. So how can we how can we treat to speak if a very sensitive individuals in a loud, large, lots of people environment being asked open-ended, thought-provoking questions? So I think that, first of all, you have a very good point in how you put that, that there's like the desirable part of being sensitive and there is more, sen- you know, like the other part that makes it more difficult to be a sensitive person in this very typical world, like we say. So um, I think that It's important to, when you make treatment plans, to take this into consideration. One hand, which is, for instance, I always recommend parents to go early to school uh, and to have it quiet and to have the exposure, you know, interventions with the teacher when there aren't too many people. I, I already put something in my Instagram this last week saying, do not wait for, you know, meet and greet kindergarten first day of school or first meet and greet with everybody there to bring your child with SM to meet the teacher for the first time. That's what we have to work with that. And, you know, I just talked to you about the food, for instance. We're not going to flood a child with anxiety and try to change that in the classroom when we're working with SM. On the other hand, we also are going to help them survive in this world a little more. And I think it's our job as healthcare providers to help them slowly cross the bridge of sensory modulation difficulties too, because we cannot accommodate all the time. So slowly and always, we expose them to situations of more stress. Like I have a child, he's a teenager, actually middle school, almost high school. Nobody can make noise when they eat around him. And he screams at the parents and he's going to scream at other people too or he's going to run away from the cafeteria. So how can we help him become more accustomed to that? There is even a name of a disorder for that, but he needs to get used to some of this or use earplugs. I mean, I have kids using yeah. that. And if they go to a hockey show, don't get there in the when everybody's getting there, go early, get a hot dog and go to the place and then, or to a basketball, then the level of noise is going to increase. So, in, and I think we have specialists who help us work with the food exposure to increase the food and also the tactile. I never liked tags in my shirts when I was a kid and, and I inherited a lot of clothes from my older friends and my older sisters. So that was great because they were soft by the time they came to me. <laughs> but, you know, there's so much that you should accommodate, but you should take this into account because they may be reacting to something sensorial. Absolutely. Uh, that will interfere with your plans for the SM intervention. No, absolutely. We do the sensory profile too for uh, children um, and teens who really screen for sensory processing. We ask that as part of our evaluation, like the intake, the selectomutism evaluation or interview. And once we see that, we really realize that's a big part of their presentation and how to accommodate that. And the biggest ones we see are picky eating, really sensitive to foods. We see it in terms of touch 
clothing, like you said, you clearly see that as well. And also, so touch, loudness, being sounds overwhelm them. This is, and we have done research on this and it's interesting. I didn't realize this too much until we actually got the research, but a lot of the kids are very visually sensitive. They're very affected by visual stimulation. And I used to think a lot of it was sound in the beginning until we started to really research it, but no, it's the visual. So being somewhere where there's a lot of visual stimulation going on, that can shut them down and overwhelm them as well. And I go back to one of my golden rules, comfort precedes communication and progress doesn't happen in a group. And that's what you're saying when you get to school early, you go check out where the birthday party is going to be, you drive there, you see it, you go with a friend who you've built comfort with. So you do whatever you can to create comfort and be there first. Don't ever arrive to a loud, large, lots of people environment and expect your child to thrive. It isn't going to happen. Um, It's not going to happen easily, and it could be very stressful. So getting places early, predicting who's going to be there, being on the lookout for different individuals, put that kind of thought process with using the cortex. I I always say if you can get them to think, they won't shut down as much. So being on the lookout, the eye spy. And the control, because if they know the place already, if they know who's going to be there, then it will help that. And I, I'm really very pleased that you talked about the visual because I don't screen for that because I have the family questionnaire too that we give and we do all the sensory modulation, but now I'm going to add that, the visual. because And I'm not sure the parents realize that I the don't kids either. have that. Uh-uh, visual but processing. I think that what you said is really important because that has a direct implication for the accommodations at school. Absolutely. Because a kid with SM needs to be like in a corner in the front, not in the middle of the right. hole, you know? So uh, thank you for saying that. I can't wait to see your research on this. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing how we, we, you know, it goes back to, hey, I have a child with SM. I really need them to speak. And it's like, what? wait, back it up, back it up, back it up, back it up. What else is going on? Yes. Because we have to accommodate yes. them and accommodate their strategies, where you do the strategies, when you do them, with who you include, how you do it. It's all going to be based on accommodating their whys or comorbidities. As we continue our discussion on comorbidities or the whys of SM and how this affects the development of treatment plans, We have a second part, so please stay tuned and listen in.